want to invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, if you have a Bible with you. The other day, I read a fascinating thread on Twitter by somebody who claimed to work for a major, well-known, big tech company. I don't really believe anything I read on the internet, so I'm not sure if that's true, but the author went on to describe the toll that nearly two years of COVID restrictions and work-from-home arrangements have taken on his colleagues, and he writes... COVID slash work from home has totally broken people. They are, this is in big tech company, they are fundamentally weak, often with no social support outside of work. These are people with no children, no spouse, only a dog or cat for emotional support. Everyone is demoralized. This may surprise you since big tech is extremely well paid and has been able to work from home throughout the past two years. They've been given extra days off extra stipends, bonuses, etc. They never had to fear being laid off. And yet apparently, this is my parenthesis, bonuses and stipends can't replace people, relational connections. He goes on, work from home can make it easy to overwork. You take fewer breaks, often work past normal working hours. You don't feel connected. Big tech is often the only social life for these people. My company had all sorts of after-work activities, sports leagues, game nights, different classes taught by employees. That's all within the company. There was a rhythm and a connectedness that's gone. And he goes on from there in this thread to describe how unproductive and emotionally unstable his colleagues are today. And it really is tragic to read. It turns out that when God said in Genesis 2.18, it is not good that man should be alone, he was saying something not only about marriage, but really about the, the fundamental way that he designed human nature. And just consider God said that prior to the fall. That's not a sin condition. That's a built-in feature of our human nature. God made us this way. And then since the fall, just think, just think what kind of dysfunction sin has wreaked on our relational nature. Sin introduces envy and malice and bitterness and dishonesty and disobedience and disloyalty into all of our relational connections. Sin is antisocial. Sin is antisocial. It complicates relationships. It distorts relationships. It damages relationships. And yet Jesus came to redeem human beings completely, which means in the entirety of our human nature, which would include our social, relational nature. And so I want you to look with me at Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, to see God's remedy for a relationally ruined world. This is God's word. It is authoritative. It is clear. It is necessary for our spiritual life. And it is all we need for that life. And so I want to invite you to stand if you're physically able out of our reverence for the very word of God. Acts 2.42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe 
came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. Father, you address us through your word. It's not so much that we come to your word, but that you come to us through your word. And so come, we pray. Show yourself to us. Reveal your glory. Speak to us. Lay your claims on our lives that our lives would reflect the glory of your grace to this world in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Acts 2, 42 through 47 describes the result of God's saving work. What happens? What happens when people trust in Jesus? What happens when people are saved from their sins and filled with the Holy Spirit? What, what's the result of God's saving work? That, that's what Luke is describing here in this brief paragraph at the end of Acts 2. And according to this text, when God saves people, God forms those people into a dynamic community of people who share their very lives together. When God saves people, he forms them into a dynamic community of people who share their very lives together. God's saving work produces that community. Community of people who share in the spiritual life of Christ together. And because they share in the life of Christ together, they also share the everyday stuff of life together. And there's, there's a crucial order there. Your common faith in Christ is what produces your common life together, or what we call community. Common faith in Christ is what produces Christian community. Fellowship with God is the foundation of fellowship with one another. Or to put it another way, sharing your everyday lives with one another is the expression of the life that you share in Christ. Sharing your everyday lives together is the expression of the life you share in Christ. Now, Acts 2, 42 through 47 is easily misread, and it's misread when we read it as a prescription rather than a description. In other words, Acts 2 is not prescribing a formula for building the perfect church. It's not saying, here, just, just do these things, copy this. And you hear people talk like that all the time. We're just trying to get back to the early church. And people have this view of church history, like basically we've got 2,000 years of people failing to be Christians, and if we could just get back to Acts 2 and copy what they did. But it's not a, it's not a prescription, and, and neither is it a rubric that God has given you to take around and, and use to, to evaluate and judge communities of Christians and all the ways that they fall short of your idealized expectations of what you expect the, the church to be. Rather, Acts 2 describes the kind of community that God creates. It's a description. God does this. God creates this kind of community. He does it by His Spirit through the gospel of His Son, Jesus. Luke's purpose in describing this new covenant community is to prove something. To prove that God's end-time promises have already begun to be fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. The dwelling place of God is now with man. 
That's what God promised he was going to do. He was going to dwell with us forever. He would be our God and we would be his people. And Luke just got done describing the outpouring of the Spirit of God on the day of Pentecost in fulfillment of everything God had promised through the prophets. So in the past, God manifested his presence discernibly on earth in places, in buildings like the tabernacle and the temple. And then the fullness of God dwelt in the body of a man, Jesus of Nazareth. And through the sinless, substitutionary death of that man, God made a way for sinful humans like you and me to have full access to the presence of God, to enjoy his glory and his goodness. And so after Jesus ascended into heaven, which just happened 40 days prior to this, after he ascended into heaven, Jesus, the risen, ruling, reigning king of earth and heaven, poured out his own spirit on his people. That's what Luke is telling. And he's telling it so that you would know about this fundamental reality that changes all of human history from that day on. God dwells with us. And now the local church is the new covenant community, the living temple, through which the invisible God manifests his discernible presence on earth. I mean, do, you, do you think that way about church? It's easy to forget. You, you feel ordinary if you're anything like me and you look around and we just, we're all a bunch of ordinary people. We always say everybody's normal till you get to know them. And, and this is the visible expression of the invisible God on earth, the place where God dwells, his body, his temple. And God wants you to know that because God wants you to participate in that. He wants you to experience that. He wants you to belong to that. God wants you to share in the spiritual life of Christ with others and then to express that joy of sharing in Christ by sharing your everyday lives together. God wants you to share in the life of Christ together and to express that shared life together by sharing your everyday lives together. And the particulars of that look different, culture to culture and through different time periods. And yet, there are some deep realities and broad themes that are going to be the same everywhere. This January, we've been preaching through a brief series of preaching on various texts of Scripture that address some of the corporate habits of grace, as we call them. Practices that we have as a community, practices that we engage in because, according to God's Word, these are practices in which and through which God communicates more of His own presence and His own grace and His goodness to us. And so, last two weeks, we covered why it is that we preach, why the preached Word is so central to our gathering on the Lord's Day, and why it is that we sing, why we value expressiveness in worship, why we express our joy and the fullness of the Spirit through song. And this morning we're looking at why is it that we are devoted to one another in the particular way that we are? Why do we intentionally share our everyday lives with one another in spiritual community? Occasionally we hear comments from those who are new to Emmaus Road Church as they get to know us and some of the rhythms that we participate in and people will say things like, whoa, you guys like gather together a lot. You're together on Sunday mornings, and then you're together in discipleship huddles, and then you're together in MCs, and, and you also like attend Little League games together, and do barbecues, and game nights, and a hundred other things, and you spend a lot of time together, which strikes people as weird a little bit. 
Why do we gather together so frequently? Why do we value that? Life-on-life life community. Why are we so devoted to one another that we would be willing to realign our calendars and our priorities and our rhythms of life? Well, the truth revealed in Acts 2 is why. Because sharing our lives together is the expression of the spiritual life of Christ that we enjoy together. I want to show you where I get that in Acts 2. Sharing in the spiritual life of Christ. That's the ground of Christian community. Acts 2.42 begins, And they, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So who are they? Well, at the beginning of Acts 2, God pours out his Holy Spirit on a small group of disciples. They were gathered in a house in Jerusalem. And because this happened during Pentecost, which was a a Jewish harvest festival. Jerusalem was full of pilgrims, people who were either Jews scattered throughout the Roman Empire or converts from paganism, Gentile converts to Judaism who traveled to Jerusalem for this festival. So there were, in Jerusalem at this time, there were Egyptians and there were Persians and there were Africans and Romans and Arabs and a bunch of people that we've never heard of. And that diverse crowd, while they were gathered there, they heard what happened to these disciples of Jesus who received the fullness of the Spirit. They started speaking in different tongues. They started declaring the mighty works of God in the languages of these pilgrims visiting Jerusalem. And understandably, those pilgrims were amazed and perplexed, Luke says in verse 12. Amazed and perplexed. And so, in order to explain and account for what was going on, Peter stood up and he preached this sermon. Recorded in Acts 2. And he explained that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, was God's anointed king who was crucified, died, raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, and now has poured out the gift of the Father that had been promised by the Old Testament prophets. And listen, listen to the crowd's response in Acts 2, 37 and 38. Now when they heard this, this sermon about Jesus, they were cut to the heart. Cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? How do we respond? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 41 says, so those who received his word, were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. That initial group in Jerusalem was like maybe 120 people. Can you imagine? 3,000 people added that day. So when Acts 2.42 then, the very next verse says, and they devoted themselves, it's talking about they who responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. People who put their faith in Jesus. They received the forgiveness of their sins and just as Peter said, they received the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's who they are. Acts 2, 42 through 47 then is describing a spiritual community supernaturally formed through the saving work of God. And the most fundamental thing about gospel community is that it's made up of people who trust the gospel people who are trusting in Christ together. We see this again in verse 44, which says, and all who believed were together. What's the defining characteristic? Faith. All who believed were together. 
They have a shared faith in Jesus. They're sharing in the life of Jesus. Verse 47, and the Lord added to their number those who are being saved. God's not done saving people. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. He has commissioned his disciples to disciple the nations, and it's going to happen. And so God is adding to their number those who are being saved. So this community is defined by faith in Jesus and the forgiveness of sins and salvation. They are participating in the life of Christ together. And this new covenant people of God, they share in Jesus and his spiritual life. And when I say spiritual life, I mean the life produced by the Spirit. I think sometimes we get kind of too much of an ethereal idea of what spiritual, spirituality is. It means life brought about by the Spirit. You were dead in your sins. The Spirit of God made you alive. That's the kind of life we're talking about. That's the center of Peter's sermon. Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, alive, pouring out his Spirit on all who trust in him. And I think one of the most damaging distortions that American Christianity in particular as, a, as an expression of Christianity has introduced to the global churches is the elevation of individualism, individual spirituality to the exclusion of corporate spirituality. So in America, it's really common to hear huge emphasis on personal relationship with Jesus which is really important. Yes, you must trust in Jesus for yourself. Nobody else can do that for you. You hear that all the time. Your parents can't believe for you. Your pastor can't believe for you. You have to believe in Jesus for yourself, but you never, ever believe in Jesus by yourself. Ever. So in America, you hear people say things like, if you were the only one, Jesus would have died for you which might make some people feel really good, but he just never, ever meant to die for one person. He meant to die for a people and to make them his own. Verse 43 says, awe came upon every soul. This was a shared experience of the power of God. Awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. The, the whole church... The, they were marked by this shared experience of God. They, they experienced spiritual affections together, awe. That means fear, reverence. Luke uses that word, fear, here translated awe. He uses it five different times in the book of Acts, and every single time he uses it, he always uses it to describe a corporate response to the discernible work of God. Not, this guy went off into the woods and had a quiet time. And he felt this. No, the whole church, everybody came under this experience of spiritual affection because they together experienced and shared in and beheld the work of God. These aren't up on the screen, but Acts 5.5, 5, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. Acts 5.11, and great fear came upon the whole church. Acts 19.17, and fear fell upon them all. Luke is describing a shared experience of the presence of God. And in the rest of this text, Luke goes on to describe the Jerusalem church praying together, verse 42. Attending the temple together, verse 46. Worshiping together, verse 47. Clearly, at the heart of spiritual community is a shared experience of God, a participation together in the spiritual life of Christ through the Spirit of God, by faith in the Son of God, the foundation of spiritual community is sharing in the spiritual life of Christ. Listen to how Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it, German pastor and theologian. 
Christian community is not an ideal we have to realize, actualize, produce, create, but rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. The more clearly we learn to recognize that the ground and strength and promise of all our community is in Jesus Christ alone, the more calmly we will learn to think about our community and pray and hope for it. You know what kills community? Fretting and being anxious and stressed and discontented and frustrated and insecure about community. Dwelling on all the ways that other people aren't living up to and being for you everything that you think Christians should be for you. Being frustrated with yourself and your own limitations and quirks and personality things and why am I always so awkward and why do I say things like that? And all of that just kills community. You know what builds community? People who share in the life of Christ together. Jesus Christ alone. He is the ground and the strength and the promise of all our community. And that just takes all the pressure off of you. A Christian community does not require assembling you know, the dream team. Just get all the extroverts together. And, and, and if you could all, you know, you ladies, if you could just become more like Joanna Gaines and make sure you can show hospitality like she does. And no, just, it's not about that. It's about sharing in the life of Christ together. Christian community is not an ideal we have to realize, but rather a reality God created in Christ. And you get to share in it. You do nothing. That's the gospel. You just, you're in because you're in Christ. So what does it look like then when people participate together in that reality? Oh, man. Well, sharing our everyday lives together, that's the expression of the life we share in Christ. Acts 2 reveals that, that God forms his church through this supernatural work of the Holy Spirit poured out on his people. This community described here is the result of the fullness of the Spirit. That's what starts it all. That, that's the epicenter of it. However, don't make the mistake of thinking that spiritual community means unseen community, imaginary, ethereal Intangible. No, according to Acts 2, the, the spiritual presence of Christ is manifested physically in the observable lives of the people who belong to this local church in Jerusalem. In these six verses, Luke is able to sketch for us a vivid portrait, a depiction of the local church because it was observable. It was discernible in physical realities, eating bread and food, verses 42 and 46, sharing possessions and belongings, verse 45, gathering in the temple and in their homes, verses 44 and 46. They shared in these realities of everyday life together. Sharing in Christ led to sharing meals with one another. Luke mentions this twice, verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. And then in verse 46, and day by day, Attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. And breaking bread, yes, eventually it came to be used as a term applied to the Lord's Supper. But it would be out of place for us to read this and say, oh, he's talking about communion. 
and, and somehow import our picture of what we do and how we practice communion into what they did here. He's talking about day by day, daily meals. They received their food. They just, they were eating. Luke, Luke simply means they ate everyday meals together. And in one sense, these were totally ordinary meals. They weren't a formal religious sacrament. And yet, at the same time, these were not ordinary meals. Because of their shared life in Christ, these shared meals took on new spiritual significance. They partook of meals together as those who partook of Christ together. So they ate together frequently, not sporadically, day by day, verse 46. They opened their hearts and their lives to one another by opening up their homes to one another. It's an expression of that. Open homes is an expression of open hearts. They ate with glad and generous hearts, praising God, verse 46 and 47. In short, they ate together like Christians. I mean, everybody eats, and a lot of people like to eat with others, but they ate like Christians. And it's easy to fall into kind of a, a Gnostic mindset that separates the, the spiritual and the physical, the heavenly and the, the earthly, the, the, the supernatural and the ordinary. And, and so I think we fall into that trap when we, we think things like, you know, a Bible study together feels spiritual, productive. Eating a meal with people is just kind of every day. Praying together, that feels really spiritual. Talking about work and parenting and life around table, fellowship, that's just kind of ordinary. But shared meals have always been, for Christians, an expression of the spiritual life that they share in Christ. Sharing in Christ also led them to share one another's burdens, verses 44 and 45. Luke says, all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, some people come to this and, and see in these verses some kind of primitive early church Christian communism going on. That's not what's happening here. We know from passages like Acts 4.37 and Acts 5.7, these Christians continued to own property. They continued to own land and businesses. They continued to turn a profit on it all. They didn't just sell it all and throw it into a big pot and let somebody else manage it. This is not a denunciation of stuff as unspiritual. Now, th this is a description of how spirit-filled believers care for one another with their stuff. You don't just love each other by feeling warm fuzzies. Y you love each other with stuff, tangibly, practically, in the everyday stuff of life. And so, as anyone had a need that came up, maybe because they put their faith in Jesus, and maybe there were social repercussions for that, they belonged to a community of people who had resources. Some have an overabundance. Others have a need, and they're able to meet those needs within that community, gladly, joyfully. Spirit-filled believers love one another tangibly. Material needs are met materially, not with positive energy and good vibes. This assumes, though, that believers know each other, that they know one another and what's going on in their lives. How can you meet somebody else's needs unless you know that they have a need? And the hard part there is, how would you ever know they have a need unless they told you? And I don't know if this is just, you know, uniquely an American thing. My guess is it's just a sin thing, but it's especially prevalent in America. We just don't like to admit when we have needs, right? We will pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We don't take handouts from anybody. We'll do it ourselves. 
And in Christian community, it just doesn't work like that. We hide those things. And then you come to find out months later, somebody went through a hard time, and you're like, how did, why didn't you tell us? We gladly would have carried that burden with you as an expression of the life that we share together in Christ. And sharing in Christ leads to gathering together. Verse 42, Luke says, they devoted themselves to the fellowship, which translates the Greek word koinonia, means togetherness, sharing, shared life, closeness of relationship. Not just that they're in relationship, but that that relationship is close and it extends into all of life. There's simply no way to have koinonia without being together in the same places, which is exactly what verse 44 says, and all who believed were together. I love that description from Luke. All who believed were together. They got together in the same place. They liked being together because they shared together in the life of Christ. And and those words just land with a greater weight and significance, don't they, today? After nearly two years watching churches suspend in-person gatherings and distance from each other, and a world where technology makes virtual meetings possible just seems more necessary now than ever to state what I think has been taken for granted for centuries, that there's no such thing as a virtual church. The church is particular people expressed in local churches, people who gather in a place at a time in relationship with each other. And certainly there are times when we are prevented from gathering together, perhaps because of illness, sometimes because of the snow and the cold. I think we've canceled Sunday morning gatherings here two or three times in the history of our church because of the weather. That happens, that we are prevented for a time. And yet, the church can't ever exist in the cloud. It exists together, being together, locally, inhabiting physical space and time. Verse 46 says, they were attending the temple together. And there is a different word, together. Not the same one used in verse 44. Together doesn't quite capture the, the weight of the, the Greek word here. The word is homothumadon, which I think sounds like a kind of dinosaur, but it just comes from two words, homo, which means the same, and thumos, which means desire. Same desire, one desire, one purpose. They were together of one accord, is how it's translated in other verses in Acts. So, so they weren't just in the same place. They were in the same place with the same purpose, with the same ambition, with the same desire, the same aim to know God and to share in Christ together. And so their gatherings were purposeful, purposeful expressions of that life that they share together. And and all of this, all of this sharing of meals and sacrificially meeting needs and gathering in homes, it, it just fleshes out the very first description Luke gave of this Christian community in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We know the apostles preached the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we know that they applied the gospel to people's lives. And we know that because the apostles' teaching is preserved for us in the letters of the New Testament. We have their teaching. We, too, are devoted to the apostles' teaching. The word of God is central to our spiritual community, that same teaching. And in those letters to local churches as they were planted all throughout the the Roman Empire, the apostles are applying Here are the implications of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection for you in community. And what we see is being united to Jesus radically reorients all of your 
relationships around you. We see that especially in the one another commandments in the New Testament. There are over 50 of them. And as you think about these, this is one of those realizations for me that years ago came to see if these are commands in the New Testament that I'm supposed to live out as a believer, what does this imply? What does this suggest about the nature of Christian community? Let me just read a few of these for you. Think about what kind of community this would shape, what it would take to live these out. Romans 12, 10, love one another with brotherly affection. 1 Corinthians 16 and many other places, greet one another with a holy kiss. Galatians 5, serve one another. Galatians 6, bear one another's burdens. Ephesians 4, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. That's one where I, I read that and I just think, there's no command like forgive one another unless people are offending and sinning against one another. That tells us something. 1 Thessalonians 5, encourage one another and build one another up. 1 Thessalonians 5, again, always seek to do good to one another. Hebrews 3, exhort one another every day. Hebrews 10, stir up one another to love and good works. James 5, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. 1 Peter 4, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Uh, the one another commands of the New Testament, I think they imply at least three things. First, you cannot live the Christian life on your own. If, to go off as a hermit might seem like, oh, I'll just have such uninterrupted time to meditate and pray and think and write and journal and whatever you do. Yes, and neglect the 56, 59 one another commands in the New Testament. Second, the Christian life cannot be restricted to a once a week gathering. How do you do what Hebrews 3 says, exhort one another every day, if you only see people once a week? Can't be reduced to that. Third, your personal relationship with Jesus, it just radically reorients relationships. These one another commands are not busy work. They're not add-ons. They are the overflow and the expression of the life of Christ you share in. So that's what devotion to the Word of God means. And that's significant for us as a church. It just means being devoted to the Word of God has to be far more than being devoted to Bible study. That's good. There's nothing, we study the Bible. We put a lot of time and thought and attention into God's Word in order to live it out. If devotion to God's Word doesn't extend beyond that, into a context where we're living out the Word of God together, then we're not really devoted to the Word of God. Devotion to the Word of God is going to overflow in a community that is committed to living these things out together. It's going to, studying the Bible produces actually showing hospitality and actually bearing one another's burdens and serving one another and loving one another and forgiving one another and all of those things, which all assumes we're, we're in community with each other. So those who share in the spiritual life of Christ share in the everyday stuff of life together. And, and if you share in Christ, in community like that, the result is that God makes himself known to the world. Verse 47, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. When you love one another, God, God makes the truth and the power of the gospel observable to the world. Belonging to a community of believers with whom you share your time and your resources and your homes and your tables and your needs, that's a tangible portrait of the gospel to the world that God uses to bring people to himself. Someone said, the church 
is like a movie trailer, like a preview for the world of what life with God is like. Right here on earth for people to see. It's a picture of the gospel lived out in our everyday lives because think about the gospel. Jesus took on flesh. He died a physical death. He was raised from the dead with a body, which is why we expect to be raised from the dead with our bodies. He ascended with a body into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And what do we profess to believe? He is coming back again bodily. With a body, he's coming back again. All of that means our bodies matter. This world matters. The meals we eat matter. Life in community matters. Jesus redeems it all, and that's why we're devoted to one another. Because we share in the life of the incarnate Son of God together. And we realize that that's going to look different in different churches. At Emmaus Road Church, we've intentionally structured a, a delivery system that we think is easily reproducible. It just doesn't take a lot of resources, space, paid staff. We gather on the Lord's Day like this, where the preaching of the Word is central to the life of our church. And then we gather throughout our week. Our members gather in what we call discipleship huddles. And in those places, we dig into the Bible. We study God's Word. We unpack the text of Scripture that was preached. We focus on not just hearing the Word, but being hearers and doers of the Word. And we seek to apply the gospel to one another and know Where do you most need the gospel this week? Where are you struggling with unbelief? What sin and idolatry is taking root in your heart? And how does Jesus address that? And then we gather in what we call missional communities where we share life together. And MCs are really the context for living out the one another commands of Scripture, sharing our spiritual life in Christ together by sharing everyday life together. MCs are... We say this all the time, they're they're not Bible studies, they're not prayer groups, they're not support groups. Of course, we we do pray, we do read God's word, we do support one another, but I think of them like like a family. If somebody asked you, is your family a Bible study? You would say, that's a family. Do you read the Bible in your family? Yeah, of course. But it's a family. And what do families do together? They eat together and celebrate together and recreate together, and work together, and share each other's burdens together. They just share life together. They do all kinds of stuff in the context of life together. All of that. And so, MC gatherings look a lot like extended family gatherings. And the rhythms and the routines of MCs reflect the different seasons of life of the members of that MC. But that's what we do together. We eat, we celebrate, we lament, we serve, we recreate, we talk We just share life together because we share Christ together. And as we engage in those everyday rhythms of life, the Spirit of God weaves our lives together with one another. And the more we delight in Jesus, the more we give ourselves to his people, and the the more we give ourselves to his people, the more we delight in Jesus. And deeper and deeper we go together. And that's how the Spirit of God produces vibrant gospel culture that bears witness to the world that God dwells among us. He does. His dwelling place is with us. So that's our our delivery system. And it's simple and intentional. And we believe that that builds up faith and that over time bears witness to the world. So you may be here this morning and of first concern to me would be anyone here who, you're sitting here and you know you don't share in the life of Christ. You don't know him. 
You're not right with him. You've heard about him. But there is unresolved sin in your life. Some area of rebellion that you have not wanted to let go of. Confess to God and to those you've sinned against. And this morning, God calls you to turn, to repent, and rely on Jesus who gave himself for you. And the same promise Peter announced to those people in Acts 2 is true for you. You will receive forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit as you trust in Jesus Christ who died for you. Some of you belong to Christ, but you don't currently belong to a local church. I'm just amazed, especially the last six months or so, a lot of people visiting, people moving here from other states and people coming from surrounding areas. And so I've realized a lot of people are just in upheaval right now. And, and we'll never tell you, you have to commit yourself to this church. We, we just trust as, as long as you want to worship with us and we get to walk with you, there is no pressure. Thank you for worshiping with us. We're so glad you're here. We will encourage you to commit yourself to a gospel community, to a specific body of believers with whom you can regularly live this out together. Share the life of Christ by sharing your lives together. Charles Spurgeon said it like this, speaking of the church. He said, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. All who have first given themselves to the Lord should as speedily as possible also give themselves to the Lord's people. How else is there to be a church on the earth? If it is right for anyone to refrain from membership in the church, it's right for everyone. And then the testimony for God would be lost to the world. Give yourself first to Christ, and in due time, God will lead you to a particular local people to whom you can commit yourself and share your life as an expression of the shared life you have in Christ. And to those of you who are members of Emmaus Road Church, You are, you are our joy and our crown. The dearest people on earth to us. And what a joy it is to be in community together, trusting in Christ. And I pray that God will cause you, through his word this morning, to marvel. You share in Christ. Not just you personally, but you share in Christ Look around you. Look at these. These are the saints for whom Jesus died. He gave his life for these people. How precious must they be to him? He will not let them go. He will not lose a single one the Father has given to him. And you get to share in life together. And so I pray that God grants you the grace to wholeheartedly give yourselves to one another for the glory of God, the witness of Jesus, and for your joy, for the good of this city where God has planted us for such a time as this. Let's pray. Father, you have not dealt with us as our sins deserve. Instead of wrath, you show us mercy. And instead of the relational dysfunction and isolation and loneliness and despair that's so common in our world, you save us into a community of people. And oh, how our joy in you is intensified when we share that joy together like we're doing this morning. 
deepen our joy in Jesus. And may deeper joy in Jesus lead to deeper, joyful giving of ourselves to one another. Around and around and around until Christ returns and we see you face to face. Get glory for yourself in this community of believers. And make yourself known and add to our number those who are being saved by your work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.